This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. For those of us who are remaining in the room, if you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 19 today. Please open to Acts 11, 19. Adam is currently going through a sermon series called A Gospel People. And we've been looking at what the heartbeat of every church should be, what our culture as a family should be shaped by, things like encouragement, honesty, and honor. We're taking a break from that series today, but we're still looking at the church. And so if Adam has been asking, what does the heartbeat of a healthy church look like? Today we're going to ask a different but closely related question. What does a church with a healthy heartbeat look like? So Adam's been looking at the things that make up the heartbeat of a church, and today we want to see that in action. We want to see a healthy church that has this heartbeat he's been describing and see what that church looks like. So to do that, we're going to be looking at one of the earliest churches we have record of. So if your Bible is open to Acts chapter 11, would you look with me as I read our passage for this morning, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord is with them, and the great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask this morning as we look to your word and look at the church in Antioch, you would show us what a healthy and thriving church looks like. And I ask that through that you would lay on our hearts a bigger vision of who you are and what your spirit is capable of doing in this world through your people. We ask for our time that what we would remember would be your words, not any of my own, but what your Spirit has for us here in the Scriptures. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years ago, some residents of the Roman Empire, living, living in the bustling metropolis of Antioch, looked out at our spiritual brothers and sisters and asked, what's the deal with these Christians? 
No one had ever used the word Christian before. But something was happening in Antioch. There was a strange group of people in the city. And the way that they lived and the way they acted was different. It was unique and it was attention-getting. But it was hard to figure out exactly who this group was. So as the citizens of Antioch looked in at this strange group, they tried to figure out who are these people. But the problem was they couldn't group them in any of the ways they were used to. They couldn't group them ethnically. Because in this group of strange people in Antioch, there were some Jewish individuals. But there was also some Greek Hellenist individuals. So they weren't grouped along ethnic lines. They couldn't group them economically either because in this group of people in Antioch, there were some who were rich and some who were poor and some who were somewhere in the middle. They couldn't group them geographically because some of these people came from Antioch, whereas others came from Judea and others came from the northern part of Africa, from all over the world, and yet they gathered together. They couldn't group them by age because some people in this strange group in Antioch were young and others were old. So the only way the citizens of Antioch could figure out how to identify this group from the rest of the city was to acknowledge the one thing that united these strange individuals, Jesus Christ. The strange group of people came from different places, they had different statuses, and they belonged to different ethnic groups, but they all called Jesus Christ their Lord. So the nickname was born. This group, they were the Christians. They were the Christ people. These Christ people were making a name for themselves. Why? Because a church had been born in Antioch, and God was working powerfully through his church. And so it would have been enough that in this large city, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only behind Rome and Alexandria, you had Antioch, maybe as many as 300 to 600,000 individuals living in this city. But what was happening with this church was enough that this group got the name Christian. Because however they were acting, whatever they were doing was notable. There are many things that we learn about this church from the passage that I just read. But this morning, I want us to just focus on three characteristics of the church in Antioch. Remember, we want to look at a healthy church with a vibrant heartbeat and see what it looks like. So I want us to just look at three of the characteristics of this healthy church. They all flow from being a healthy church, but all together these characteristics build together to one end result. So I want us to see that from this church in Antioch this morning. Characteristic number one that we see from the church in Antioch is growth. What began as just a few out-of-towners coming in and talking about Jesus turned into a church made up of a great many people who, upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, repented from their sin and believed in Christ alone as their Savior. The growth in Antioch is mentioned three times in our passage. When the men from Cyprus and Cyrene first arrive in the city and preach the word, we're told that a great number believe and turn to the Lord. And then when Barnabas comes up from Jerusalem to the church and encourages them, we're told that a great many were added to the church. And after a year of Barnabas and Saul teaching this group together, we're told that they were able to teach a great many. It started as just a few out-of-towners, but then turned into a great many individuals in this city, in a church together. 
And we see that there was an evangelistic fervor that began with the first Christians to arrive in the city. These men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene, from places that were hundreds and hundreds of miles away, coming to this city of Antioch. And the first thing they did was boldly preach the Lord Jesus Christ. That fervor for evangelism didn't stop at those first individuals. It spread to those who believed so that continually more and more were added to their number. Eventually, this growth of the church got the attention of the church in Jerusalem. That's where the Christian church began, Jerusalem. It's hundreds of miles to the south of Antioch. And word got all the way to Jerusalem that something was happening up north. There was a movement of God's Spirit that was seeing people coming to a saving faith. So the church in Jerusalem responds, and they send up their man Barnabas to see what's happening. When he arrives, he rejoices in their faithfulness. Then he travels 130 miles farther north to find Saul, because he knows that there's a great many Christians here in Antioch, but they need to know God's Word better. They need to know more of what God has revealed in the Scriptures. So he goes north, he finds his friend Saul, and they come back to Antioch. And for a year, a full year, they teach this group of believers. And it seems that the growth continues as a great many come under the teaching of the Word. So that's the first thing that should strike us about this church in Antioch. It was a movement that grew. And it grew quickly but it kept growing. This shouldn't surprise us because Christ instructed his followers to make disciples. If you remember, after his resurrection, and after Christ had been with his disciples for several weeks, he then was taken up into heaven. But before he did that, he gave all of his followers the commission to make disciples, to go share the good news of his saving work on the cross so that people might turn from their sin and believe in him as their Savior, that they might be baptized and then taught up in all that Christ had taught. Christ tells all of his disciples to make disciples. The message of the gospel is for all people, so that any who would hear might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Paul reflects in Romans, how then will any call on him whom they ha- who has not believed How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? God's kingdom grows and is built by God's messengers being sent out to spread the gospel. And the disciples in Antioch, following that command of Christ and out of a concern for those who had not yet heard this good news of Jesus Christ, In the power of God's Spirit, they boldly preached Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that is that many believed and the church grew. Later in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit tells the church in Antioch that they need to send Saul and Barnabas away so those two men can go on and continue to share this gospel message with others who have not yet heard the name of Christ. Remember, Saul and Barnabas are gifted teachers who came to Antioch from out of town and stayed with them for a full year. They loved the church in Antioch that much to come to a strange land, to people they had likely never met before, 
and lived with them and among them for a year just so that they might teach them the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit says, take those two men and send them onward. After prayer and fasting, the church's response is to send Saul and Barnabas to those who haven't yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ. The church in Antioch could have responded to the Holy Spirit's prompting with selfishness to try and persuade Saul and Barnabas to stay with them. They already had him for a year, but just think of how much more could happen if Saul and Barnabas stayed even longer. The church had already grown up to that point in large part because Saul and Barnabas as gifted teachers were helping them proclaim the gospel. The church could have been selfish to say, we want to keep these individuals so that we might continue to see the growth we're seeing. But the Holy Spirit instructed them Send Saul and Barnabas on. For the church in Antioch, their passion for reaching the lost and their obedience to the Spirit led them to commission those two men for the further advancement of the kingdom. And they enabled Saul and Barnabas to leave Antioch and go on into further unreached parts of the Roman Empire to continue to spread the name of Jesus Christ. Think about being a church it's been well-fed and well-served by two gifted teachers like Saul and Barnabas and then being told, send them both away. I've worked for them elsewhere. And the obedience and the trust in God that comes from knowing this is God's will. And that trust comes from such a passion that everyone might hear the name of Jesus Christ, that you understand that we need to send messengers to every corner of the earth so that everyone can hear this gospel message. So for the church in Antioch, it wasn't just enough that people in that city heard the message. They wanted to enable messengers to go to every corner of the earth. They had such an evangelistic fervor. They wanted to see their city saved, but cities that they had never been to, maybe never even heard of, have the chance to come to saving faith as well. That's the first characteristic we see of this church. It grew It grew because of a fervor, a passion that lost might hear the good news. We see that from Antioch. We can ask ourselves, what's the temperature of our evangelistic urgency? Is it like the men from Cyprus and Cyrene who come into a strange new city and the first thing they do is boldly preach Jesus Christ? Is it like Saul and Barnabas who leave behind home, travel hundreds of miles away just so that some who are eager to hear the gospel might have the chance? Do we have the same urgency in our evangelism that like the church in Antioch, we try to find every way that we can send out more messengers to spread the good news of the gospel, even if if at times it doesn't seem to make sense for our own congregation? What's our urgency? It's easy to find a reason to not share the gospel. It's easy to find a way to dial down the urgency of evangelism and push it off to a later date. Oftentimes when we're in a position to share the good news of Christ with someone who has not yet heard it, we can say, well, the timing's not quite right. Maybe a later time, we'd have more space to talk about this. It's just not the right time right now, so we'll find a later time to kind of have this conversation. Or we can say, you know, if I I come in here 
and really confront this person about their sin, tell them their need of a Savior, that could change or maybe even ruin my relationship with them. It's a little bit risky, so maybe, maybe it's just not the right conversation to have. Maybe if I am known as sort of the Jesus freak that's going around telling everyone how awesome Jesus is, that's going to start to negatively affect my reputation. Not just with the people I'm sharing it to, but just everyone who kind of knows about me. I'm going to be that person. That sort of weird religious freak that is always talking about Jesus and doesn't seem to have other interests or hobbies. That might, might start to tarnish my reputation a bit. Or maybe I'm going to get into a conversation or have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ and then they're going to ask some question that just stumps me. And I'm going to look foolish because I'm sharing this good news, but it seems like I don't even know what the whole good news is because I can't even answer all their questions. I don't, I don't know how to respond to what they might say or the objections they might bring up. It's so easy for us to find a reason to dial down the urgency of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have not yet heard. But every reason we can come up with is a poor one. When you consider the eternal reality of those who will be separated from God forever because of their sin. So we should constantly remember the brothers and sisters in Antioch. During a time of growing persecution, when people were being killed for preaching Christ, the first thing they did when they got into a new town was to preach about Jesus Christ. That's why there was Christians in Antioch in the first place. We see that right from the beginning of our passage. They were coming up from Jerusalem and Cyprus and Cyrene and all over because persecution was starting to take place. People were being killed for proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ. But even when the risk was their very own life, they didn't stop telling people this good news. They had an urgency and the hand of the Lord was upon them. And so the church grew. So we should pray that God would make us disciples who make disciples, that are eager to share this good news with everyone we meet. We should pray that God would make us a church like Antioch, who joyfully sends messengers to those who are lost, who finds any and every way we have to share the good news of Christ. Characteristic number two of the church in Antioch was grace. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he immediately saw the grace of God among the church. That is to say, the actions of the church and the lives of its members were putting God's grace on display for all to see. Being around this church and with this church gave Barnabas a reason to rejoice because it was evident that they had experienced God's grace and they were demonstrating it to anyone who would watch. It was evident through the great many who had come to saving faith, and it was evident by the church's desire to walk in obedience to God's word. So after rejoicing at seeing this, Barnabas responds as we would expect him to. He encourages them. Barnabas isn't even his real name. His real name is Joseph, but he got the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a man who loved to encourage others. And so upon coming to the church in Antioch, he sees God's grace and he encourages them to remain faithful. 
to hold the course and to walk steadfastly in the grace of God. So how does a church make the grace of God visible like the people in Antioch did? In countless ways. Grace is the action of someone who is not obligated to act. And it's the gift of someone who's not obligated to give. The grace of God refers to all that God has done for us when he was under no obligation to do anything. And it refers to all that God has given us when he was in no way indebted to give us anything. So how does a church make that grace visible? If we're healthy, hopefully, in nearly everything we do. Just think of our time this morning, how it's structured to reflect God's grace. We have a time of corporate singing. What we're doing there is celebrating the grace that God has shown us. We're doing that together, we're doing that publicly, and we're doing that corporately as a family. We sing songs of God's mighty saving work on our behalf. We have times of prayer to acknowledge the grace that God listens to us. God doesn't have to listen to us. He's not obligated to listen to us. He does that out of grace. And so we have times where we pray to him and celebrate the fact that he's listening. We have times where we read scripture, where one individual will preach from scripture and the rest will hear from scripture because we have the grace of God revealing himself specifically through his word. God didn't have to tell us anything about himself. He could have made the world and remained silent from then on out. But instead, he gave us his word so that we could hear from him. That's a grace of God. And every time we sit under the preaching of God's word, every time we open this book and read it together, we're celebrating God's grace in giving us this word and demonstrating that grace to others. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. We'll remember Christ's body and blood given for us who were just dead sinners. And Christ gave his very own body and blood that we might be forgiven. That's God's grace. We'll have a time to fellowship and enjoy the family that God has made us as a people. Again, God didn't have to give us a family of a church. But through his grace, he gave us each other that we might build into one another and encourage one another. All of these things are a way that we display the grace of God. And that just continues on throughout the week as a church. When we hear and share testimonies of how God has saved us, we're able to let others see a specific way that God has delivered grace into our life. When we extend forgiveness to one another, it can come from a place of knowing that we've been forgiven much by God, and God has given us that grace so we can now forgive others. As we encourage one another, we do so by reminding each other of who God has made us in Christ through the grace of saving us. As we confess our sins to one another, we can do that knowing that God is gracious to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are countless ways that a healthy church can display the grace of God. When we make much of who he is and what he has done, and when we don't believe that what he's given us is just something owed to us, when we understand that it's simply out of his lavish grace he has given us anything. So upon Barnabas' arrival in Antioch, it was clearly evident that this church was a people who had experienced God's grace 
And we're continually sharing that grace with others. So are we that church? Are we that people? Marked by grace. Do you know all that God has done for you when you were unworthy? Do you know all that he has given you when you were undeserving? As a church, we should regularly remind one another of God's grace and be a community where it's evident that we have been given life and God himself when we were dead in our sins, completely undeserving. The hand of the Lord was upon the church in Antioch, so the church demonstrated the grace of God to everyone who could see. Third characteristic of the church is generosity. One of the Christians that eventually came up into Antioch was a prophet gifted by God to deliver God's word to the church. And this particular prophet was named Agabus. And Agabus prophesied about a famine that would sweep throughout the entire known world, the entire Roman Empire. And Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, who's written down this historical record for us, gives us the content or the context that this famine that Agabus prophesied about took place during the rule of Emperor, Emperor Claudius. There were several famines during Claudius's time in power, but it seems possible and very likely that this particular famine would have occurred around 45 AD. And during that famine, there was a problem with the grain harvest. That led to food shortages that rippled out across the entire Roman Empire. And eventually, after many had suffered under this famine, Claudius himself would have to work to try to bring in corn import into the empire just to get people fed. There were often regional famines that would affect a portion of the Mediterranean area where Antioch and Jerusalem and Rome are located. For those regional famines, just a few hundred or thousand people would be affected, and everyone else would be okay. But this famine, 45 AD, the grain shortage, that was an empire-wide, and for people living in this area, what would have been a worldwide shortage of food. And Agabus clues in the church to Antioch ahead of time that this famine is coming because God has revealed it. And so upon hearing about this, church in Antioch then sets about to determine how much help they can provide to their brothers and sisters in Judea, a province that would have likely been in a far worse position economically to weather a disaster like this. Antioch was, again, a central part of the empire, third largest city at the crossroads of several major trade routes, a place where they would have been able to buy and import things that they needed, but Judea was down south more out of the way, more economically disadvantaged. And the church in Antioch knew they're not going to be able to weather a famine nearly as well. And so upon hearing that there was going to be trouble, the church in Antioch, their first response is to figure out how much help can we put together and send down to the brothers and sisters in Judea. Notice that radical generosity in the church. When they learned of this famine that would affect everyone, including themselves, their first work was to determine how much they could help others. They provided help that could very well have come at the cost of their own well-being. Because if they sent too much, what turned out to be 
more than they could handle. They might have had food shortages themselves. But they heard there was trouble for everyone, and their first instinct was, how can we help others who will be going through this disaster? Each person worked to figure out just how much they were able to give to people hundreds of miles away that they had never met, they would likely never meet, so that those people might not suffer. This open-handed selflessness should remind us of what we've seen from other churches in Acts. If you've ever read through this book before, you'll remember that at several points, we see followers of Christ having all things in common and sharing everything they have and making sure that no one was in need. We see that in Acts chapter 2 with the very church in Jerusalem. They made sure no one was in need. In Acts chapter 4, the church once again makes sure that everything has all things in common, no one has need. And in Acts chapter 4, we see Barnabas, the same Barnabas now in Antioch, selling his property so that he could give it to the church to make sure that no one in the church would go hungry. So the church's habit of generosity is present all the way up to the church in Antioch, that when they hear of disaster, their first thought is, how much can we help? How much have we been given an ability to give to others so that they might not suffer? That habit and culture of generosity runs exactly opposite of our current cultural expectation. Financial advice will tell you to save money, invest it wisely, and then you can get a maximum return. If you own land, hang on to it, because its value will grow, and someday you'll be able to sell it for far more than you paid for it. If anyone in this room bought a house 20-plus years ago, that house is probably now worth far more than you initially paid for it, and someday, should you go to sell it, you should be able to realize a great profit. And in our current cultural context, charity is a commendable goal, but in moderation. Not in a way that would detract from your other financial goals. You can give money away so long as it doesn't impinge on your lifestyle that your income bracket would dictate. So you can be generous, but make sure that you are secure and financially set up with everything you need and everything you might need, that your retirement account is healthy, that you have the property and the housing situation figured out. And once all those things are secured and determined, then if there's anything left over, you can be generous. You can give to charity. Brothers and sisters, that is not the mentality of the church in Antioch or any churches that earnestly follow Christ. Instead, from a place of joy, the Christians in Antioch determined how much they were able to give away. Not how much they were obligated to give, not how little they could give away while still jumping over the bar, but how much they could possibly part with and send to others so that those others might be blessed. That is a radical generosity that recognizes that my material wealth and possessions are not the most important thing that I have. They're not the most core thing to my identity, and so I can be free in giving them to others as I see need. It's a generosity that will run in the exact opposite direction of our world because we have an exactly opposite set of priorities for many in our world. So we see the hand of the Lord is on the church in Antioch, and they respond to the need of others with selfless generosity.
It's from our passage we saw these three characteristics that marked the church in Antioch. Growth, grace, and generosity. And all three of them led to one result. Christ was displayed. Remember, it was in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. It was here in this town that they were first called Christ people. Their bold evangelism and their rapid growth wasn't motivated by making a name for themselves or establishing an impressively large church. It was motivated by proclaiming the glory of Christ crucified and resurrected to any who would hear. So they proclaimed that message and they they grew as a result of that proclamation, but their motivation behind proclaiming Christ was to make much of his name. Their display of grace wasn't motivated by a desire to be known as a gracious or agreeable people. It was motivated by God giving them unmeasurable grace through Jesus Christ that they could then give to others. Their generosity wasn't motivated by nebulous altruism to just be do-gooders. It was motivated by the knowledge that in Christ they had been given more than they ever deserved so they could in turn be generous with others. The church in Antioch did all these things. They grew, they displayed grace, and they were generous until the people of Antioch could only come to one conclusion that these were a Christ kind of people. Because it was Christ who was motivating everything they were doing. Christ seemed to be the one ultimate goal in their life was to make much of him and to proclaim his name so that all could see his glory. That was the one driving force that was moving the church in Antioch forward until the citizens of Antioch said, all we can tell about these people is that they love Christ and they are following him with every fiber of their being. So we're left now looking at this church to ask, what kind of a people are we striving to be? What kind of a reputation do you hope to make for yourself? That you're a friendly kind of person? That you have a reputation of being a successful, accomplished person? That you're a reliable person of integrity? You'll spend years building that reputation so that you can be known as those things. But we have to ask ourselves, not just what kind of a person do we want to be seen as, what kind of a person do we want to be? Do we want to be a friendly kind of person? Or do we want to be a Christ kind of person? Do we want to be a comfortable kind of person, or do we want to be a Christ kind of person? Do we want to be a financially secure kind of person? Someone who has it all figured out with their bank and their savings? Or do we want to be known as a Christ kind of person? Do we want to be known as a conservative kind of person or a liberal kind of person? Or do we want to be known primarily as a Christ kind of person? Do we want to be known as an intelligent, discerning kind of person? Or do we want to be known as a Christ kind of person? Do we want to be known as a peaceable, agreeable kind of person? Or do we want to be known as someone who displays Christ? Do we want to be known as a freedom kind of person? Or do we want to be known as a Christ kind of person? None of those things I just listed are bad in and of themselves. But they are not worthy of becoming your identity and becoming what you're known for. 
Instead, Christ alone is worthy of being the kind of person we ought to be. Instead, may we be so moved by the Spirit, so enraptured by Christ's beauty, and so dependent on the Father's grace, so overflowing with God's love, that we count all those other identifier marks as rubbish compared to knowing Christ and being known as his people. Let's be a Christ kind of people that displays his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our brothers and sisters in Antioch who were so sold out to sharing and proclaiming your glory and the message of the gospel that the only way to describe them was Christians. May we be the same way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.